Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The exodus of approximately 6 million black people from the American South between 1915 and 1970 had a significant role in setting the stage of the civil rights movements of the early 1960s. Many of the children of those who left the South participated in desegregation efforts, which included the Freedom Rides and lunch counter sit-ins. The Civil Rights Acts of 1964 and 1965, which attempted to resolve employment discrimination and define voting rights, only changed the law. Many young blacks, however, did not see changes in their everyday life. The Black Panther Party for Self-Defense was born out of this disillusionment. Although infiltrated and feared by the FBI, the Black Panther Party pioneered social and community programs, including free medical clinics, free meals, and educational programs. Our guest in this edition of Radio Curious is Columbia University Sociology and Gender Studies Professor Alondra Nelson, author of Body and Soul, The Black Panther Party and the Fight Against Medical Discrimination. Alondra Nelson and I visited by phone from her office in New York City on February 13, 2012, and began our conversation when I asked her to describe the Black Panther Party. The Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, which was its original name, was, um, you know, a radical left. Uh, they identified as Marxist-Leninist organization, but they were also the children of migrants. Um, they were the children of parents who were refugees from Jim Crow. And so one of the important things I think we should understand about the Black Panther Party is is that they emerge in reaction to the dissatisfaction that people still felt, despite the fact that we had had these great social strides with the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964 and the Voting Rights Act in 65. The Black Panther Party emerges in October 1966. Um, and, and, you know, in the face of the reality that so much has changed, but so much remained to be changed, particularly for poor communities and poor communities of color. So you have that on the one hand. I think it's also important to thinking of them as the children of immigrants, as the children of migrants, rather, like immigrants um, from all over who have been so central to the founding of American society and the proliferation of American society. They are the children of people who came seeking a new and better life for their children. And so there's a dual disappointment here. There's a disappointment that um, changing race policies with regard to laws, racial laws in the United States are not leading to always substantive changes in the experiences of people like Huey Newton and Bobby Seale, who would co-found the Black Panther Party, but also that there was a kind of, they had a sense of disaffection because the new and better life that their parents had hoped for them um, also wasn't coming to fruition. Before we go too much farther, can you describe in brief detail the Great Migration, who migrated, and the circumstances? Sure. So the Great Migration happened pretty much in, in two waves. Um, one in the early 20th century, about 1910, 1915, and then there was a second wave around World War II. And uh, but there were people, of course, coming in between those periods. But it was, you know, over the course of say 20 or 30 years, you had millions and millions of African Americans moving from the South to the Midwest. Um, in places in the West like Los Angeles and Oakland. Um, and this is a significant demographic shift because 
um, for those of you, for your, you know, your listeners who know about um, the history of slavery and the demography of the plantation South, there were pockets in the South where the population were, I mean, you know, part of the, the sort of paradox of, of slavery, for example, in the South was that you had communities in which you had 90 or 95 percent people uh, who were slaves, who were blacks, who were slaves, and you had the, the, a distinct minority of whites. And so the South was significantly African-American. Um, and so to have millions of people leave changed not only the South, but also the North. And so you had, there were several routes. I mean, there was a, a route that went often from places like Georgia that went up the, to the mid-Atlantic and, um, and to um, the Northeast. So places, people from Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, for example, might end up in Washington, D.C., um, like my grandparents did, or they might end up in Boston, or they might end up in New Haven, Connecticut. Um, people in the, the more western southern states like Arkansas and Texas and Louisiana often ended up in uh, you know, Los Angeles um, and also uh, Oakland, California. And can you tell us what the term Black Panthers stands for? The Black Panther, of course, is a you know a cat, a sort of large uh, cat um, in the wild, but it also has deeply symbolic political meaning. So, it was the name of the political party during the, the the southern we might call the southern civil rights struggle. There was a Lowndes County Freedom Party um, in Lowndes County, Georgia, that was trying to get voting rights for African Americans and the Jim Crow South. And their emblem for this Lowndes County Freedom Party was a Black Panther that looks uh, very much like the iconic Black Panther that we know of the Black Panther Party. Um, and uh, and the Black Panther Party uh, borrowed freely from the Lowndes County Freedom Party, and they, you know, pay tribute to the fact that they borrowed freely from this emblem. And, um, you know, it was meant to suggest the blackness of black people, but also a sense of, you know, courage and bravery um, in the face of segregation and Jim Crow. Alondra, can you describe the medical discrimination that existed in the 50s and 60s that the Black Panther Party was challenging? Yes. Um, you know, medical discrimination is a term that I use quite broadly in the book, and it describes several different factors in the way that people had to deal with forms of professional and um, inequality and health inequality. So, you know, at least legally up until 1964, you know, we had Jim Crow not only in lunch counters and buses and these sorts of things, we had Jim Crow in medical facilities. So Jim Crow in medical facilities meant um, in Atlanta, for example, you had uh, the Grady Hospital Tower. So you had two, two towers, the Grady Hospital Towers, one for black people and one for white people that stood next to each other. You had separate but equal hospital facilities. It also meant that you had often allegedly separate but equal but clearly unequal medical training. So you had black uh, nursing schools and you had white nursing schools. It was also the case that in hospitals where people would be seen, black doctors couldn't get visiting rights in, in hospitals. So there, so there would be patients that they couldn't see in their hospitals because of of their race, even though they were qualified as doctors. 
So there were very kind of, there was, there's a, a, a sort of large scale or macro or structural sense of medical discrimination that was about the way that hospitals functioned, the way in which black medical and health professionals could or could not be trained or could or could not have access. Um, it was often the case in the Jim Crow South in particular that they even had, that Jim Crow extended outside of the hospitals to ambulance services so that, um, you know, if you called a dispatcher because you were bearing witness to someone having a heart attack or someone had been shot or something had befallen someone and they needed emergency transportation to the hospital, the dispatcher would ask you whether or not the person was black or white because they had black and white ambulances. And then based on whether or not the person was black or white, they could decide indiscriminately whether or not they wanted to send an ambulance to a black community, send a black ambulance to the black community. And then there was discrimination um, in the very practice of medicine. So and this is where I think the Panther story is key. Um, so we understand that, you know, even though there was um, racial inequality in places like Oakland, that it didn't operate in the same way that it did in the South. So you didn't have black ambulances and white ambulances, particularly by the time you get to 1966 when the party emerges. But it was certainly the case that people didn't necessarily have access to health care, um, and the care that they had access to was often very poor. So the Black Panther Party spends a lot of time both in their writing um, and, and their public pronouncements um, in parks and at various events talking about the sort of experience of a hypothetical sort of person, a poor black person who would go to a hospital, and it would involve things like waiting for long time, a long time in the waiting room to be seen and perhaps not being seen at all after, you know, taking a whole day off from work to wait, um, having to uh, have an interaction with a doctor who was disrespectful, who didn't take your pain seriously, um, who didn't take your ailment seriously, who treated you brusquely. Um, so uh, medical discrimination um, and, this, and the way in which the Panthers were dealing with it dealt from, moved from the large scale of the hospital and the ways hospitals operated to the small scale of how doctors interacted with poor and black patients. How did the Black Panther Party deal with that on a material plane? What steps did they take? Yeah, well, I think materially they dealt with this by setting up their own clinics. Um, that was the, the response to this. You know, if we can't, if people can't get care, as the Panthers understood they had a right to, and the care that they, you know, should have access to, we're going to start our own clinics. And so by 1970, um, the Black Panther Party have a, a national network of health clinics. The national headquarters of the party, the leadership of the party, requires that all chapters uh, have health clinics. And the clinics were um, run, they were very local, very community-based, very grassroots organizations. Um, and so they were run with kind of community resources. And each of the chapters were, uh, individual chapters were responsible for getting the clinics up and running. And the clinics did things like, um, you know, blood pressure screening. Sometimes they gave immunizations. Many of them had, um, you know, modest pharmacies. The clinics in Berkeley and Chicago actually had pretty well supplied pharmacies. And the clinics also served for the party, I guess, another function. They were a way for people to get access to information about housing or to get support or help if they were dealing with a difficult landlord. Um, it was a way for them to get food if they needed food, if they needed clothing. Um, so the clinics really took health as a, a very, uh, had a very broad, and the party as health activists had a very broad definition of health. And they understood that um, all of, you know, that social issues have everything to do with people's health care. 
Can you talk about the sickle cell anemia project that the Black Panther Party had in its clinics and its importance to people who may carry that cell? One of the success stories of the Black Panther Party's health activism is their sickle cell anemia campaign. In 1970, 1971, 72, when the Black Panther Party was involved in sickle cell outreach and testing, very little was known about sickle cell anemia in the public and certainly in black communities. And part of what the Black Panther Party was engaged in was just raising national awareness about the disease, both for black communities and um, that suffer disproportionately from the disease. So it's, you know, politically, the Black Panthers made it um, and underscored the fact that it was a black disease. So the Black Panther Party did a lot of public education around the disease that included things like explaining and, and fine detail the sort of um, molecular dynamics of the disease in their newspaper. And so the issue that they raised is what we today call racial health disparities. So part of how they rose awareness and were beating the drum around the disease was that they were saying, you know, they exposed the fact that the state um, was spending lots of money on other genetic diseases that were more likely to affect other communities, and that sickle cell anemia as a disease, by comparison, was um, neglected. And so it would be quite successful. There would be, they would garner in the course of uh, particularly 1972, lots of and lots of attention around the disease, such that the Nixon administration that was, you know, no fan of the Black Panther Party would increase tenfold in the course of that year uh, the money that the federal government dedicated to the um, to research into the eradication of sickle cell anemia. What does sickle cell anemia do to people? Sickle cell anemia occurs predominantly in people of African descent. The red blood cells are usually round, like you know, like a donut or like a penny. Um, and sickled cells literally take on this the shape of a sickle, so they they sort of curve and they're sort of C-shaped or V-shaped. And what that means in the body is that oxygen can't circulate in the bloodstream as well. Um, it often causes pain in the joints, and people are just not getting oxygenated blood circulating through their body. So it affects the organs. It affects, um, you know, oxygen is, is the, the, the stuff of life. We all need it. Um, when the Panthers were working on sickle cell anemia, it was very much a childhood disease so that people were dying often before their 20s, often before their teens, if they had the disease, the sickle cell disease, not the marker. Um, today, people live a, a lot longer. They, they can live, you know, until their 40s. Why is it a disease that is predominant in people with African origins? The basic reason of any disease, even diseases that are that are predominant among, say, um, Ashkenazi Jews, is partly just because of, you know, circumstance and historical factors and et cetera about how people choose to marry. So, I mean, so part of the, the story of genetic disease is about, is about communities marrying within these small communities over generations again and again and again. And, and in fact, one of the solutions to um, genetic diseases, one might say, is for people to sort of intermarry or marry outside of the group that's married um, traditionally over time. Politically and historically, why it was especially interesting to the Black Panther Party is is that in places where there was malaria, so in places, parts of Africa that are malarial belts, the trait for sickle cell anemia is actually a good thing um, because the, the trait for sickle cell anemia provides some protection against malaria. 
Um, but in places like Oakland, that isn't a malarial belt, you know, it loses its genetic advantage or the, the role that it's supposed to have in natural selection. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Alondra Nelson, a professor of sociology at Columbia University in New York City. She's the author of Body and Soul, The Black Panther Party and the Fight Against Medical Discrimination. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Professor Alondra Nelson, how would you characterize medical discrimination to people of color now in the United States? Obviously, things have changed quite a good deal um, with regards to medical discrimination since 1966 or 1972 um, when the Black Panther Party were doing their work. I mean, I think it's the case that there's been so much more training and awareness around the importance of how doctors interact with patients. And, you know, it wasn't only the Black Panther Party. It was women's health activism, uh, health activists, and also health activists who were working in uh, new left organizations like Health Pack who made, you you know, the medical profession really aware that they had to treat people with respect. And so that's certainly changed. I mean, there, you know, there was a time, you know, where people didn't feel empowered to ask questions about their doctors. I want to ask you about the consequences of the FBI looking at the work of the Black Panthers. The FBI had, you know, everything to do with the decimation of the Black Panther Party as an organization. The FBI had a counterintelligence program that's called COINTELPRO um, that basically spied on, intervened in radical organizations. And this was well before the Black Panther Party. It goes back to um, at least the, the post-World War II period. And so part of what they did was, you know, surveillance and spying. The FBI often sort of sponsored these agent provocateurs who would go into organizations like the Black Panther Party and create um, paranoia and, you know, um, sense of sort of skepticism um, and distrust among the members of the organization. The effect of the FBI was to both sort of uh, literally attack activist organizations from the outside, but also to corrode them from the inside. And what happened in the Black Panther Party as a result of this FBI intervention? Well, I think that people turned against each other. I mean, it's, you know, as someone who interviewed many members of the party for my book, it's still the case that sometimes party, members of the party will say, well, this happened, or we did this, or we were engaged in this kind of work in the clinic, and then there was this man or this woman who were working there, and we're pretty sure this person was an FBI agent. So there's this sort of still ongoing sense that people, that there were FBI agents. And so there were a lot of, so on a material basis, I mean, the intervention of the FBI and state repression, even on the municipal and local level meant that places like clinics were the the Black Panther clinics were raided constantly and so part of why the clinics often had difficulty is that indiscriminately members of the police department or the FBI would come in and destroy equipment would tear down walls would confiscate equipment Elaine Brown told me a story in Los Angeles in which they were getting a delivery of some equipment from a new left clinic in another part of town and then the police followed the truck that was coming to deliver the equipment to them and then confiscated and destroyed it um, and it was also the case that the the FBI and local state authorities um, acted on the clinics by sort of tying them up in red tape. So um, they would try to get them to go to court or have to get licenses and these sorts of things. But the overall effect is that with regard to the Panther activism more general, generally and health activism in particular is that 
you know, we don't have a sense of, of, of all of the work that the Panthers were doing. And so part of, you know, people often ask me, why don't we know about the health activism? And part of the reason we don't know is that the the FBI's counterintelligence program was so effective in shaping our narrative about the party, not only on people on the right who, who are critical of the party, but even amongst people on the left who are supportive of the party, such that we have a very, very narrow uh, and very thin sort of narrative of what the party did. What was the threat that was perceived by the FBI? Well, I think that the threat was that the party would, um, in doing these these great social uh, pro welfare programs would increasingly garner support from local communities and that the movement would grow. And notoriously, J. Edgar Hoover, you know, described the Black Panther Party's breakfast programs, one of its social programs, um, you know, like it's like the health clinics, as being uh, one of the greatest threats to an American national security. And so there was a sense that the Black Panther Party's social welfare programs equal to or more so than them carrying bandoliers or carrying guns or defending their communities against police brutality was the thing that the state was concerned about. So that comes down to uh, self-determination and self-defense. Absolutely, yes. What more needs to be done to alleviate discrimination? Well, I think part of what needs to be done is that um, you know that we need to 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 remember the stories of the Panthers and other people, other um, activists uh, working um, during this health activism. So, to the extent that um, the counterintelligence program COINTELPRO is successful in squashing or muting these stories about people's empowerment around healthcare issues in their agency, we need to restore that historical narrative and and let people know these stories once again. Um, I think it's, um, you know, also the case that we need better training for for doctors still. I mean, there are, over the last sort of 10 to 15 years, there's been um, an outgrowth of what are called cultural competency programs. So this part of the training for physicians and nurses, um, which is about getting people to, you know, doctors in particular who often come from elite backgrounds, regardless of, of doctors' racial and ethnic backgrounds, they often come from elite backgrounds. And so, you know, there's uh, been efforts through these cultural competency programs to get doctors to have more empathy and to really understand uh, what it must be like to, for example, not have health insurance and to have to rely on emergency rooms or to have health insurance um, uh, but to not be treated well or not to have not to have insurance that's sufficient for um, the needs that you or one of your loved ones are suffering and these sorts of things. So I think there are still things that can happen within the healthcare sector. And, you know, frankly and honestly, I think I think that we need a, a universal uh, health care program so all people have access to health care. What happened to the Black Panthers clinics? Most of the clinics um, went away over time. I mean, some of them, a few of them barely got off the ground, and some were more successful. Um, there are no currently existing uh, Black Panther clinics, but there are uh, clinics with deep, deep ties to the Panther legacy that give us an example of how this work has continued. Um, one example is the Carolyn Downs Family Medical Center in uh, Seattle, which is named for a former member of the Black Panther Party who started the Black Panther Health People's uh, Free Medical Clinic in Seattle, in the Seattle chapter in 1968, um, and Carolyn Downs would die of cervical cancer um, in 1970. And this is a this the Carolyn Downs Clinic in Seattle today is a sliding scale nonprofit, 
and um, they are they uh, explicitly are named for this former member of the Black Panther Party. And if you go in the clinic today, which I did as part of my research, um, you'll see uh, there's a, a picture of Carolyn Downs, and they pay tribute to her also with a plaque that basically describes the Black Panther's work in Seattle in this very same neighborhood doing health care. And the clinic leadership declares that they're working in the in the footprints, you know, following in the footprints of the Black Panther Party. It's also the case that many of the people that I interviewed who had worked in Panther clinics are still involved in, in health work in various forms um, in their local communities. So, um, you know, one woman I interviewed who was a member of the, the New York Panthers working uptown in Manhattan and Harlem and also in the Bronx now works in the community development, uh, health and health outreach for a large hospital who, uh, in New York City. And people went on to get trained as doctors and nurses and these sorts of things. Well, Professor Alondra Nelson, tell us a little bit about yourself, your childhood. What occurred in your experience that fomented the development of these ideas in you? Yes. You know, I grew up in San Diego, California. I was the grandchild, I guess, of migrants from the Great Migration. So my father is from New Orleans, Louisiana, and his parents moved from New Orleans to Los Angeles in around World War II. And on my mother's side, my mother's father was an immigrant from Jamaica. And my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, was a migrant from Georgia who came to Washington, D.C., as I mentioned earlier. The migrant part of the the Black Panther story, I think, very much um, resonates with me in this sort of sense that I think the children and grandchildren of migrants and immigrants have of, you know, wanting life to, to be better, working hard for life to make things easier for your parents and also to have life better for yourself. And so I think that that part, that piece of uh, the, the the Black Panther story resonates with me, although I've never been um, uh, an activist. I think that the migrant part is, is part of what attracts me to the story for sure. Well, we want to thank you for being with us on Radio Curious and ask a couple of questions. One would be a eureka or an aha moment in your life that you follow that was a shift in your life. It was um, the end of a significant uh, romantic relationship, and uh, the gift of that, you know, what at the time was quite sad, um, and, you know, a moment in my life was the realization that I think that life is really about change. You know, I think that we we get that and we know that and we say that, but the sort of deep realization that part of the beauty of life is about its dynamism and its change and it's um and that the fact that this dynamism and change offers for us you know new beginnings constant surprises um ways to be stronger new ways of seeing the world and tell us what would you like to do with the remainder of your one precious life it is one precious life isn't it Barry it's so true uh, you know I, what i want to do with the remainder of my life is love those that I love as best as I can and serve those that I love as best as I can and also to be of service to the world in the way in any way that I can and as a scholar um, for me that's to you know write stories that haven't been written and to hope that these stories can be of service to others are there stories currently in the works that you could share with us you could tell us about I'm right now I'm working on um, a, a book called reconciliation projects which is 
about the use of genetic ancestry tracing. Um, I work in sort of the sociology of race and ethnicity and what might be called African-American studies. And I also work in another area, um, which is the sociology of science and medicine. And so in this project, I'm interested in the phenomenon of genetic ancestry testing, particularly about amongst African-Americans and how these tests are being used to sort of reconcile in the sort of Truth and Reconciliation Commission way um, aspects of American history, particularly the after effects of slavery in the U.S. And finally, Alondra Nelson, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? Absolutely. There's so many books I'd recommend to your listeners. But one of the one of the things I wanted to say about in response to your question about the one precious life was also just to experience beauty and to read beauty and take beauty in and just take time to to experience all the beauty in the world. And with that in mind, the book that I want to recommend to your readers is uh, Crave Radiance, New and Selected Poems by Elizabeth Alexander, uh, which is filled with nuggets of beauty and wisdom. It's just uh, an awe-inspiring book. Professor Alondra Nelson, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you very much, Barry. It was great to be with you. Alondra Nelson is a professor of sociology and gender studies at Columbia University in New York City. She's the author of Body and Soul, The Black Panther Party and the Fight Against Medical Discrimination. The book she recommends is Crave Radiance, New and Selected Poems by Elizabeth Alexander. Professor Nelson's website is Alondra Nelson, A-L-O-N-D-R-A-N-E-L-S-O-N dot com. All Radio Curious programs are free at our website, radiocurious.org. Our phone is 707-462-6541. Email is curious at radiocurious.org. Christina Onestot is our associate producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening. Thank you.